Good morning. This morning, our scripture reading is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take the Bible in the pew in front of you as our gift to you. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, together a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his soul? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have started a series several weeks ago called Boundaries, and we have been looking every week at different boundaries that God places in our life and how those boundaries help us to know and understand and do the will of God. And our idea for this series comes from Psalm chapter 16, verse 6. It's a verse that we have said every week we've gotten together, so I'm going to put it on the screen and I want you to read it with me, Psalm chapter 16, verse 6. Let's read it together if we can. Put it up there. There we go. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, what you just said is a recognition that God has placed boundary lines in your life. God has given you certain boundary lines that have kept you from going to other places that you might have otherwise wandered or intentionally gone. These boundary markers have kept you confined. And what you also said is that you recognize that the boundary lines have fallen for you in beautiful places, that they mark out for you God's inheritance, God's will for you, God's design for you. So we've looked several weeks ago at circumstances, how God can use circumstances in our lives, even evil circumstances, uh, to keep us where he has, would have us to be within his protection and provision. We looked the second week at how God's word is a boundary line, boundary markers in our life that we can quite honestly and quite easily and quite often 
go past and over those boundary markers, but they always have consequences. God's word is designed to protect us and provide for us as well. And then last week, we looked at relationships, how God has put relationships in your life. And with those relationships, there are boundaries that will help keep you both in good relationships with the people in your life, but also in good relationships with God. Well, today, we're going to look at a boundary marker that we all have. And this boundary marker is unique because this boundary marker is the same for all of us. It is time. We all have the same amount of time in a day, 24 hours in one day. There is nothing you can do, no matter how much money you have, no matter how spiritual you are, that can make more time in a day than God has allotted in a particular day. It's a boundary marker that we all must live within. Now, the length of our days is obviously something that God has determined. And we don't know. You can look around the room and you can think, well, he doesn't have very much longer. Look at him. But the truth is, you don't know that. He may still be here tomorrow and you may be gone, right? I mean, we can, none of us can guarantee really even our next breath. If you live long enough and you walk through enough life, you recognize that there are people you had no idea two years ago would not be in your life today, but they're not. So age is not necessarily a determinant of how long our life will be. For most of the younger folks in the room, you are living with the idea that you've got a lot of time. But the reality is you don't necessarily know that to be the case. And so what happens is when we're younger, we tend to be urgent about all the busyness of life. There's, a, there's an urgency, but there's also the thought that you've got all the time in the world. Meanwhile, for those of you in the room who are more seasoned, let's say, you may be very aware that your time on earth may be coming to an end. But yet your days may not be as busy as they were when you were younger. And so you may not live with the kind of urgency that, that your life would require as you approach the end of your life because your busyness in one particular day isn't as busy as it may have been when you were pursuing a career or raising a family in your home. So time has this way of, of, of cheating us out of really understanding the kind of stewardship that God is inviting us to have when it comes to our time. There is a uh, leadership guru who has uh, since passed away. He wrote a lot of leadership books, was a believer. He, his name was Peter Drucker. He wrote uh, about leadership as it is expressed through the use of our time. And this is something that Peter Drucker said about time. And you know this is true. You could have written this because you know this is true, that time is, is, is inelastic, meaning that you can't stretch it. You can't make time last longer. It's inelastic, especially if you've been on a vacation and you wish it could last just one day more. You, did, you had one more day before you had to go back to work. You can't stretch it. Time is inelastic. The second thing he said is time is irreplaceable. It cannot be reclaimed. Once a day is gone, it is gone. You cannot go back and reclaim. You can't go back and reclaim time with someone. Many of you have had the experience where you wish you could go back and redo a conversation or redo a relationship, and you can't because time cannot be reclaimed. And the third thing he said about time is that it is indispensable, that things cannot be done without it. You have to have time in order to do the things that you want to do. Time is essential for almost everything. So here's our problem. We think that we can stretch time, we think that we can reclaim time, and we think that we can cram more things into time than are possible. We live our lives like this all the time. You probably have lived this week 
do, trying to do some of those things. Trying to cram more into a day, more into an hour than could possibly be done. Trying to go back and undo something that could never be redone because time can't be reclaimed. Or you've tried to stretch time and make more out of it. Now, here's one of the things that we've tried to do, and this is true throughout all human history, is that we have tried to resolve this problem by coming up with all kinds of inventions, whether it was the industrial revolution and we came up with the machines that we thought were going to make life easier and give us more time or modern technology we think if we can just find the right app for our phone if we can just get the right technology the right computer then we can have more time but now some of you've lived long enough you know this is true that is a lie it doesn't matter what you invent it doesn't matter what kind of technology people come up with it only adds to the urgency we sense it's one more thing to manage Think of, now not everybody can do this, but some of you can, think of life before emails and how emails were going to make life so much better. You know, you don't have to wait on the post office, you can do it all electronically, but what happened? Pretty soon, emails went from being something that were supposed to save you time to becoming, uh, to becoming a, a, a master over your time, like they demand time. Suddenly you have to respond to all these things and guess what? Your boss can reach you anytime, day or night. It doesn't have to just be between nine and five. And so while we've tried to have technology solve our problem, it's only made it worse. And then what happens, especially those of you who are younger and maybe you're pursuing your career, you're raising a family, hurry becomes a habit for you. And you live your life so often on this speed, on, on, on high speed, that you can't live any other way. And, and you're just in the habit of hurrying. And then you get stuck in the emergency mode. Everything is urgent, everything creates anxiety, and there is no crisis maybe in that particular moment, there's no pressing issue, but you can't seem to become unstuck from this idea that there is activity that you should be doing, something that should be moving you, some internal anxiety that stays with you even when there is nothing demanding of your time. So what happens is we vacillate between being anxious and being in a hurry and complete boredom. Now, some of you know what I'm talking about. Like, you, you don't know why you're bored, but you just find a low level of anxiety and worry. When you don't have anything to do, you are worried that you're forgetting to do something. And you feel guilty about maybe taking a little extra time if you're not busy doing something. Uh, you know, Alan Fadling says this, that boredom is a modern phenomenon. It is a way of describing how the empty space between our hurried activities feels to us. You know, Hurried as a modern phenomenon. Think about this. There was a time and day when we were so dependent on the work of our hands that if we didn't work that day, we didn't eat that night. But as we have become more secure, as we have uh, lived in a society and a culture where we're able to provide for our daily needs, not even just our daily needs, but maybe our needs far into the future, we become less dependent on the work of that day to eat, but it doesn't change the fact that we still have this internal drive that makes us feel like there's something, something more that we ought to do. So where does this come from? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that the idea of time is, is rooted deeply into our understanding of who God is and his created order. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Genesis chapter 1, and let's look together at something that, may, that you probably heard before, but you may not have thought about as it relates to time. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, this is what it says. God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night 
And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, this right here is the, is the, is the, the part of the creation poem that is describing how God created time. That God existed outside of time. He existed before time. He is not confined by time. But as he began to create, he put light in, in, the, uh, in the creation to mark day from night and season from season. This was the creation of time. And it says it was good. It was good. So time and seasons were all created before the fall, before the entrance of sin into creation. It was not the result of sin. And then, of course, you know the story. God created man and woman, and he created them in his image. Now, that's really important. So he set them in the garden inside the confines of time and space. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes 3. Pat read this for us earlier, but this is really important. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Ecclesiastes 3 gives us a hint. This is what it says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So so follow me here. And I know it's a rainy Sunday morning, so just everybody wake up, pay attention, okay? Okay, so he... There was no time. God is outside of time. He creates the the universe and he establishes time with the universe. He creates man in his image and he places man inside the creation, inside time and space. But inside the heart of man, he has placed what? According to Ecclesiastes 3, what has he placed? Eternity inside the hearts of man. That's why there is something inside of you that knows that time does not work with the way you were designed. There's something that presses against you. You feel it when you go to funerals. And it doesn't have to just be a young person that dies and you think, oh, it was too soon. We say that. You can go to the funeral of somebody who lived to be 90, 100 years, and I've done a lot of funerals, and I've done funerals for 100 years. It doesn't change. There is a sense in which something is terribly unfair about death. And the reason you feel that way is because God has planted eternity in the hearts of every man and every woman. That's what it means to be created in the image, in the image of God. So God put man and woman in the garden. There was peace. There was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, do not eat from that tree. But there was another tree in the, in the garden and it was the tree of life. Now, we don't have any record. In fact, we know Adam and Eve did not eat from that tree, but there was no restriction that they couldn't eat from the tree of life. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we see what happens. That, that man, Adam and Eve, took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their eyes were open. Sin entered into the picture. Listen to God's response to the entrance of sin into his created order. Remember, He created time before the fall. He created man and put put eternity in the hearts of man. And then he says this in Genesis 3, verse 22. Now, lest he, talking about Adam and Eve, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live how? Forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at, at the east of the garden, it drove out the man at the east of the garden. So here, here's what you see. That sometime after the fall, time became a real boundary for us, and it was done for our protection. 
Now, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but, but if you read the text, you read all of the Genesis chapter 3 account, and I'd encourage you to do that this week, I want you to understand what's happening. God created man in his image. He put eternity in the heart of man. He set man inside time and space. He gave man the option to eat from the tree of life. He also gave him the option to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, this would seem to indicate that unless Adam and Eve were to go and eat from the tree of life, they were not going to live forever. But the tree of life was available to them. All they had to do is go and eat from the tree of life and they would have lived forever. They weren't interested in the tree of life. They were too fascinated by the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So they ate from that tree first, sin entered the picture, and then for their protection, God said, I am going to remove them from the garden so that they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever in the state of separation from me in their sin. So man was confined to time for his own protection. You were confined to time for your own protection so that this life, this life that we live in where we live with the consequences of sin, not just our sin, but the consequences of other people's sin, that that time is limited. That God set a line of demarcation and said that you will only live for a certain period of time. I don't want you to live forever separated from me. Then our life became, the time that he gives us becomes a test It becomes for us a stewardship in which we live our life in such a way that we strive to achieve, to receive from him through relationship, the gift that he gave us planted deep in our heart, the idea of eternity with him. And so we find ourselves fighting against the clock. And here's the solution that God in in, in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says that in the fullness of time, that's a really important word. Galatians 4, 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You could also say born under time, born within boundaries, that he might redeem those who were under the law or under time or under boundaries. That God himself entered the reality of time. He stepped into time and space in order to rescue us, in order to lead us into eternal life. So what can we learn about the boundary of time from the way Jesus lived when he lived within the boundary of time? So let's look at the example of Jesus, let's look at the invitation of Jesus, and let's look at the promise of Jesus. If you're a note taker, there's a place for you to take notes there. Also, if you've got questions or thoughts, ideas about what we're talking about today, that communication card is a great way for you to interact with us on Wednesday nights at 6.30. uh, We try to answer those questions and engage in those thoughts and ideas. We'd love for you to be a part of that conversation either online or, uh, or in, in person Wednesday night. Let's take a look at this. First, the example of Jesus. Jesus led an unhurried life. And this starts really very early in the story of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, there is this story of Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, staying behind in Jerusalem when his family and everybody else was beginning to head back to Nazareth. Three days later, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with them. So parents, that's a word of encouragement to you. It took them three days to know (laughs) that they had lost their preteen son. Where was he? He had stayed back behind with Jerusalem. He was not in a hurry, even at age 12, to go where his family was going. He waited 30 years. Think about this. He waited 30 years to begin his public ministry. 
We don't have any record that Jesus engaged in a public ministry before the age of 30. After he started his public ministry with his baptism, he immediately went into the desert and waited another 40 days. Jesus was not in a hurry. His mother, in fact, one time in John chapter 2, tried to rush him. They were at this party. They had run out of wine. Jesus said, hey, do something. Or Mary said to Jesus, hey, do something about this. And Jesus said, woman, my time has not yet come. Now, what's he meaning by that? Jesus, and from our perspective, I'm thinking, Jesus, you have spent 30 years really not doing much, but you've only got three years left. You better get busy. But Jesus wasn't in a hurry. My time has not yet come. In fact, this happens again. If you look at John chapter 7, his brothers tried to rush him and say, Jesus, you really need to get down to Jerusalem. If you are who you claim to be, you need to be down there. This festival's getting started. It's coming up and you should be in town because it's time for you to get busy. And Jesus resisted the, the rush of his mother, the rush of his brothers. He was frustratingly slow on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. Look with me at Mark chapter 5. Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. His daughter was ill. He had heard about Jesus and his healing power. Jesus had just gotten back into town, and Jairus sends some people to Jesus and says, Jesus, we want you to come, and we want you to heal Jairus' daughter. Listen to, what, listen to this, this, uh, this account of Jesus. Mark chapter 5, beginning verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jesus, Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my, my little daughter is at the point of death. I mean, this is serious. I mean, you need to pick up the pace, Jesus. She's about to die. Let's rush. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. Okay, so good. Jesus is on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter. But on the way, the crowd is pressing around him. There's a woman who reaches out and touches Jesus' garment. We looked at this passage back in December, and she's immediately healed. Okay, you think, that's great. That's even less time Jesus has to spend. She's already healed. You don't have to stop. Jesus stops. He stops everything, and he does a search. I need to know who touched me. Meanwhile, all the disciples are like, Jesus, what are you doing? There's a crowd everywhere. Who knows who touched you? Jairus is sitting there thinking, come on. And Jesus is looking through the crowd. Who touched me? Who touched me? Who touched me? Finally, the woman confesses that she's the one who touched him. And Jairus has got to be thinking, okay, now you know. Can we go? Can we go? Uh-uh. Jesus is not in a hurry. Instead, he engages with the woman. He talks to the woman. He makes a point of showing everybody this woman's faith and reaching out and touching him. And so finally, what we see happen in verse 35 While he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house uh, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Do you know one of the things at the root of your greatest fear is a lack of time? One of the things, I don't know what your fear is, and probably for most people in the room, we have different fears, but I guarantee if you think about it enough, you will find traced somewhere inside that fear is is connected to a lack of time. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am not late. I am not in a hurry, but I am not late. Pastor and author Gordon McDonald talks to us about three ways that Jesus used his time. These are, I think, some good, good advice for us. I have tried to 
implement some of this in my own life, and maybe you'd find this advice helpful too as we look at the example uh, of Jesus and his unhurried life. He says this, that Jesus measured his use of time against his purpose. You can read several accounts in the scripture where Jesus said, nope, I didn't come to do that. I didn't come to do that. It's not the well who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I came to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come to do that. John 3, 16 and 3, 17. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to the world that whoever loves him, uh, that, he, that he might be saved by him. He didn't come to judge the world, John three seventeen says. Jesus says later, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. He knew his mission and he committed and spent his time doing what it was that he knew he was called to do. Now that requires us to understand what is my purpose in life, God? What, is, what do you have me do? What is the purpose you would have for me? And are you spending your time aligned with the purpose he has given you? The second thing McDonald points out about Jesus' use of time is that he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That he took time, significant time, for solitude with the Father. Martin Luther, it is said, the busier his day, his schedule was going to be, the more time he spent in prayer in the morning. If it was a super busy day, he might spend three hours in prayer that morning. Because the busier the day, the more time he needed with God to order his steps. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Let me ask you, do you often withdraw to lonely places and pray? Because if Jesus, God in flesh, felt that it was necessary to often withdraw to lonely places to pray, to have the strength and the direction to live his, don't you think you and I need that? even more than he did? I think so. The third thing is that Jesus didn't try to do too much. Jesus was focused on a singular mission and he did not try to do more than was possible in the time that he had. Jesus didn't focus on the masses of people. Jesus is teaching the crowd. There are more than 5,000 people who are gathered there. He could have easily consumed all his time with the masses. He didn't do that. Instead, he focused his time on the 12 disciples. And really, even more focused than that, he focused on the three disciples who were the closest to him. He invested his time with those who mattered and who he knew he was going to entrust the mission to. He didn't try to do too much in the limited time. Jesus really exemplified what the Proverbs writer says in Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Is that true about you? Is that true about me? Are we allowing God to order our steps? Part of the way we can allow God to order our steps and use our time is by following the example of Jesus who lived an unhurried life. Second thing, let's look at the invitation. Jesus invites us to follow him. Listen to what he said in Matthew 11. I love this, uh, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message Matthew chapter 11 beginning in verse 28 Jesus says are you tired worn out burned out on religion come to me get away with me and you'll recover your life I'll show how you I'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me and work with me watch how I do it learn the unforced rhythm of grace I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Isn't that good? The unhurried rhythm of grace. Jesus says, follow after me, and you'll learn how to do that. 
There's a, a great book that I'm recommending on the reading list by Alan Fadling called the An Unhurried Life. And in it, Alan Fadling uh, gives the example of a South African tribe that he read about where this tribe would, uh, they, they were just in the custom, it was their, their custom when they would move from place to place, they were kind of nomadic, they would run. I mean, they would pack their stuff and they would run, run, run until suddenly the leader of the tribe would just stop all of a sudden and, and drop down. And so when the, um, when the people trying to understand the tribe, the, 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 the sociologists, the others trying to understand would ask about why is this your custom, why is this your tradition, they would say, well, we, we, we run, and, but then we have to stop and let our souls catch up to us. Isn't that good? Listen, some of you need to stop and let your soul catch up with you. Some of you are running so fast that you have outrun the pace of your soul, and you certainly outrun the pace that Jesus intends for you to live by. If you feel hurried, stressed, or anxious because of the limitations of time, you are not walking at Jesus' pace. You cannot follow Jesus and constantly be running ahead of him in his unhurried pace. Let me say that one more time. You cannot follow Jesus and run at a pace that is faster than the unhurried life he established for us to live. So some of us need to order our steps and to slow down in order to recognize that following Jesus may mean that I need to live an un, a more unhurried life. John Ortberg says this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. And how many of us just felt like our toes got stepped on? And you know that. You, you didn't need John Ortberg to tell you that. You already know that when you're in a hurry and you're panicked and anxious, it is not just because your schedule is out of control. It is because your heart is out of control. Finally, let's look at the promise. The promise that Jesus gives. He gives us the promise of eternal life. Eternal life. Now, now I put in parentheses something that I think it's important to understand what that means, because for, for many of us in the room, maybe you grew up hearing about eternal life, maybe you don't even, that's a phrase you're not even familiar with, but what does it mean specifically related to time? It is freedom from the bonds of time. It is what I think God intended in the beginning when he placed eternity in our hearts when he created us in his image. Look at this, there's another example of Jesus' unhurried pace, a frustrating example of Jesus being what looks but, but, but what looks by all human standards is late in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, uh, the village of Mary and Martha and her sister. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with, o- with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus has got a deep connection with this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick, and they say, Jesus, come on. You know, he's sick, but we know you've got this under control. Just come on and back to Bethany, and and, and everything will be well. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That, That doesn't make any sense. Not by our standards, because by our standards, we'd say, no, no, no. Jesus, if you love them, you will stop what you're doing right now, and you will rush to Bethany, and you will heal Lazarus. And that's not what Jesus did. It says, he loved them, so he stayed two days longer. 
verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, to which the disciples had to be scratching their head. And thinking, Jesus, if you love them so much, why didn't we go two days ago when they showed up and told us he was sick, and now you've waited too long, you've missed the opportunity, and he's dead? Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Skip down to verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, let me translate that, Jesus, if you hadn't been late, if you'd have just hurried a little bit, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, future tense. Martha said to him, I know that he will, future tense, rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Thank you, Jesus. I know. Really wish you'd been here two days ago. (laughs) But I guess that's kind of comforting now. That's the church answer. He'll rise again on the last day. Now listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, I am, present tense, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, present tense, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And here's what we see. That in that moment from Galatians chapter 4, 4, in the fullness of time, when God stepped into time, he brought with him eternal life. And he says, I am eternal life. I am the resurrection. In Jesus, we escape the bonds of time. Not just after we die. We can escape it right now, even while we live. We can live in the fullness of his eternity, knowing that we were designed, not for time, but we were designed for eternity. God did not plant eternity in your heart as some kind of cruel joke. He planted, heart, he planted eternity in your heart as a promise that would draw you closer to Jesus. And you might not even believe in Jesus today. But I know, because it's common to all human beings, that the idea of time, the idea of being confined by time is something that seems foreign to the way you're wired Why do you feel that way? Why do you feel that way? Because God planted that inside of you to draw you to the tree of life. And the tree of life is not a tree that is planted in a garden that you cannot access. The tree of life was planted on Calvary as the Son of God would climb up on that tree and would give his life there. That he would die that you could have eternal life. So three things that I think you need to know about your time as we wrap this up. First of all, your time is a testimony. What do people see? Now I'm talking to believers now. If you're a Christian and you say you follow Jesus, what do people see when they see the pace of your life? Do they see a hurried blur of business, panic, anxiety? And let me ask you this. Do you really think they want to follow a savior like that? I mean, if they look at the pace of your life and they assume that if you're following Jesus, Jesus must be ahead of you at that pace of life, do you really think that's that's the kind of pace of life they'd want to follow? Your time is a testimony. And your time should reflect the unhurried pace of the Savior you claim to follow. 
Second, your time is a test. What are you going to do with the time that God has given you? And none of us know how long that is. The scripture says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be given to you as well. And we always think about that when it comes to our money, our possessions. But I think Jesus applied it to time just as well. Are you seeking the kingdom with your time, trusting that he will accomplish everything in his time according to his purpose? Time with God should be the first thing, the first priority that you have in your life. It's like the oxygen mask on a plane. When the, when the stewardess says, take the oxygen mask and put it on yourself first so that then you will have the oxygen you need to help other people, that's what your time with God should be like. First thing when you get up. And you're like, but I'm not a morning person. Listen, I used to make it, I used to say this to people all the time. Well, it doesn't matter if you're not, a, do it at night. I don't say that anymore because I don't believe that. I believe you need to spend time with God before you do anything else. You need to be so dependent on him that you would never think about starting your day without just at least breathing a prayer and inviting him to direct your steps. Because you know what? I've seen life when I live my life according to my plan. Apart from asking him, I make a mess. And I've seen your life and you make a mess too. But if you ordered your steps by spending time with him first and allow him to direct your steps, then your commitment to your family and the other things that you say are important, is it reflected in your schedule? Listen, God does not call you to do more in a day than you can do. He knows, he knows the limitations of 24 hours. He created you in those boundaries. Therefore, if you are too busy to get something done in 24 hours, you are doing something that is not in God's will for you to do. And you have to draw near to him to find out what that is. And third, time is a treasure. It's precious. It's not to be wasted. You know, a really good question for you to ask yourself when you're doing something and you're investing time, is this going to matter in 10 years? Is it going to matter in 20 years? Is it going to matter in 100 years? Suddenly it clarifies and it focuses you on what really matters. Listen, very few, very few of your business associates, very few of the people you work with are going to show up to visit you in the nursing home and come to your funeral. Now, I know you may be thinking, that's not true. You don't know my friends. Let me tell you something. I go to a lot of nursing homes and I do a lot of funerals. I can tell you from experience, they ain't coming. But do you know who will be with you in the nursing home? Do you know who will be at your funeral? Your family, the people who love you. Let me ask you, are you spending as much time, investing as much time with them and those relationships that will matter a whole lot longer? Are you spending it with people who ultimately will not be a part of your life? Psalm verse 90, chapter 90, verse 12 says this. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Listen, if you're here today and you are living in the confines of time and there is a low-level anxiety of fear about not knowing, not being confident about what comes at the end of your life, can I just tell you that anxiety, that anxiety was planted there by God to get your attention and to draw you back to the source of eternal life who is Jesus Christ. And you today can be set free from the bondage of time by placing your faith and your confidence in him and not just living 
in eternity after you die, but beginning to walk with Jesus each and every day from now throughout all eternity as you experience the freedom he has for you. And all you have to do is receive from him this gift that he has come to give you through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. We're going to sing a song, and as we sing that song, maybe you would want to come and pray with me, or maybe you'd come and pray at these steps, pray with someone around you. But none of us are guaranteed another minute, another day, another month, another year. And so time really is of the essence when we begin to think about how we will respond to the invitation that God has given us to enter into eternal life. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of eternity. Lord, and for the beautiful, the beautiful inheritance you have marked for us by the bonds of time. Lord, that time protects us. Time invites us, challenges us, forces us to think about, Father, our days and to order our days. But Lord, ultimately, it all comes to the same conclusion that what does my life amount to? What happens next, God? There are those here today who don't know the answer to that question. And I pray that, Lord, in a, in a way that only you can do, that you, will, that you will help them understand the significance of the anxiety they feel when it comes to time and the limitations that it's placed on their heart. And, Lord, that they might reach out to this unhurried Savior and place their faith and confidence in him and receive from him eternal life. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are claiming to follow Jesus, but in fact, we are so much in a hurry that we have long since run past him. Lord, I pray that we might stop and that we might allow our souls to catch up with us, but more importantly, that we might fall in step behind Jesus and his unhurried pace, that our life might be a testimony to the world of the unhurried Savior who seeks to give us freedom and invites us to live in the unhurried rhythm of his grace. Lord, may we find that today in you. We pray all of this in the one who comes to give us eternal life, the resurrection, Jesus Christ.